The following audio is from a sermon series from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. Well, you made it out. A little blustery this morning. Can't wait for the uh, warm Midwestern day that tomorrow is going to bring us. Oh, my goodness. I know we're getting tired of this. I'm getting tired of this. I'm thinking warm thoughts, dreaming about taking three kids to Hawaii or something. You know, it's not going to happen, but I can dream about it. It's been pretty nasty. But I want to welcome you to Sacred City Church. My name is Justin. I'm the pastor here. And uh, we are very excited that you came to join us this morning. And I've got a few announcements for us. Number one, uh, membership class that starts tonight or this afternoon at 3 o'clock. Okay, it's a two-hour class, 3 to 5 at the center. That's at our Sacred City offices. That's 1411 Brady Street. Uh, When God created his church and Jesus created his church. He said that he wants all Christians to be members of that church, to be under leadership, to be under an elder, to be under a pastor. So every Christian should have a a church they call home, a church they call family, a pastor they call my pastor. So we want, if if you consider Sacred City your home, then you need to come and be a part of this membership class tonight at three o'clock. Be there. Uh, I will be there and it will be a good time for us. Um, one, a couple other things we're working on our 2013 giving statements. Uh, we're about halfway through right now. We're going to be sending out the majority of them through the city. If you would like a paper copy, you can see my assistant rev or message us on the city and we can get that for you. And then lastly, something I'm really excited about. If you saw it on the city, March 1st, uh, we are going to be hosting here at the junior theater, um, the real marriage conference. Okay. The real marriage conference. That is a 
Basically, we're getting a satellite in. Pastor Mark Driscoll will be putting that on. It's going to be four sessions. Basically, two sessions in the morning. We'll cater in a lunch, and then two sessions in the afternoon. So it's going to be rough. It's going to be about 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This is for any singles who want to learn to, how to get prepared for marriage. All right, you need to become a good man, become a good woman before the other one comes along, so you know what the heck you're doing. Right? This is for engaged couples um, who are seeking to get married. This is for people that have been married a few months, all the way to 20, 30, 40, 50 years. It's going to really enhance your marriage. I've watched a lot of the material. I've read the book. Um, pastor Mark, he is a theologian. He's also absolutely hilarious. If he was not a pastor, he would be a stand-up comedian. So it's going to be a fun, uh, it's going to be a fun day. So that's Saturday, March 1st. Now, listen, uh, we want, this is open to the public. This is open to anybody else. So if you want to bring neighbors and friends, please do so. Uh, we, but we do need you to go to our website, sacredcitychurch.com, sign up on there. It's 20 bucks per couple or $15 a person. All right. And again, we're catering in lunch for everyone. So 20 bucks a couple, 15 bucks per person. Go ahead and sign up on our website or on the city. You can do that. And I think that's all my announcements. So I'm going to go ahead and jump in this morning and pray real quick. And let's, we're going to get, get started. Father, we thank you for calling us into this room. We thank you for just the provision that we, we actually have a building in a country that we can gather under your name and not be persecuted. There's Christian brothers and sisters all across the world that are in hiding right now because of, of the threat of persecution, the threat of murder and torture. Um, if they call the name of Christ. So we thank you for giving us a warm building to gather in, to lift up your name, to sit and hear your scriptures, to study your word, to see what you would have for us. I ask this morning that you would anoint my mind, that you would speak clearly through my mouth, that it would be um, all of you and very little, if, if any of me, Father, and that you would anoint the ears to those who hear it, that we would not just hear the words of Justin, a pastor, a young man, well, a middle-aged man, but we would hear the words of God through one of your um, speakers, through one of your chosen servants. So I ask that you would do this for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> All right, so at Sacred City, we... Um, just go through books of the Bible. We think the best thing for us as people is actually learn what the Bible says, learn who God is, not just through my opinions, but through the word of God. So what we do to try to focus on that is we work verse by verse through books of the Bible. Um, at Sacred City, so far, we've been through the book of Ephesians. We've been through the book of Genesis. And now we are in the first chapter of the book of First. Corinthians. If you have a Bible, please open it up to 1 Corinthians 1. If you have an app on your phone, you can look up version, search Sacred City. It's right there. Or there's a Sacred City app in the app store. You can search for that, find it, follow along with us. And if you don't have any of those things, we actually have a Bible in the back on the stair there that you can grab and uh, you can take it home with you. It's our gift to you. Now, well, I'm just going to get into it because I've got a lot of work to do this morning. We've got a lot of verses. We've got about twice as many verses as I've covered so far. So I'm, I think I'm going to, you know, you guys are going to get your money's worth, right? You pay me a salary. You're going to get your money's worth this morning. We might be, hey, it's warm in here, right? Nobody needs to go back out there. We might be here for a couple hours, right? You never know. We've got snacks in the back. We should be fine. Okay, let's go. Let's jump into it here. Now, last week we saw that this young church... In Corinth, it was actually the same age as we are, about two years old, but it was probably about half of our size. And 
They had probably twice as much drama as we have in this church. They had divided themselves over their preferences. One was saying, I like Paul. The other was saying, I like Paulos. I like Peter. I like Jesus. They were all divided over their preferences, right? It was like, I want traditional music. I want an organ. I want the electric guitar. I want a DJ, smoke machine, and lights, right? Preferences had created battle lines in the church. And Paul told them that the only way for you guys to be divided is for you to forget the gospel, is for you to take your eyes off the cross. And now the apostle, the apostle Paul, is going to continue to build out that argument, showing us the juxtaposition of wisdom and foolishness, power and weakness. And we're going to see this right away in verse 18. Look in verse 18. That's what Paul says. For the word of the cross... It's folly, it's foolish, to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Okay? Now, the word of the cross is foolish to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So here we see there's one word. Or one type of word. And then there's two responses to it by two types of people. There's the word of the cross. And there's two responses by two types of people. One type of person says, that is foolish. That is weakness. That is garbage. I don't want anything to do with it. The other type of people says, that is wisdom. That is power. And that's attractive to me. But it's the word of the cross that is kind of dividing humanity in two types of people. And in actuality, we're going to see that all of us start out looking at the cross as foolish and powerless. Now, I could literally spend the whole week just on this one verse. I think it's absolutely pregnant with quintuplets, right? I I could say say here all day, what is the word of the cross? What does this scripture mean? But I don't have the time, so we're going to just spend a little bit of time here. And and I, I want to ask this question first. What is... What is the word of the cross? What is that? What what is the word of the cross? I think Paul tells us, which you go down to verse 23. Follow down, look down to verse 23 with me here. Okay. Rule number one of Bible interpretation is let scripture interpret other scriptures. Okay. So I don't come out and go, oh, I know what the word of the cross is. And I just kind of create that in my mind. I actually look at the text and say, what does the text say? Look at verse 23. Paul says again, but we preach Christ crucified. Okay. So Paul shows us right here. The word of the cross is the message that Christ has been crucified. Jesus, the son of God has been crucified. Now that need that right there needs a little bit of our attention. What is crucifixion? Many of us know, some of us wear, you know, a little necklace around our neck with a cross. You can see the cross stand up here. It's one of the, the most iconic symbols. Um, in our world today, probably is the most iconic symbol in our world today. But do you know what it is? Crucifixion was invented by the Persians about 500 years BC. But it was perfected by the Romans in the days of Jesus. It was not outlawed until the time of Emperor Constantine, who ruled Rome in the 4th century AD. The ancients 
considered death by crucifixion to be not just any execution, but the most obscene, the most disgraceful, the most horrific execution known to man. In the days of Jesus, even the worst Romans, listen, were beheaded rather than being crucified. The Jews considered crucifixion the most horrific mode of death. As Deuteronomy 21 tells us, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, he is to be put to death. And if you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. Cursed is any man who hangs on a tree, Mother Scripture says. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus called crucifixion, quote, the most wretched of deaths. The ancient Roman philosopher Cicero asked that decent Roman citizens not even speak the word of the cross because it was too graceful, too disgraceful of a subject for the ears of decent people. Don't even speak of the cross. It's too disgraceful. It's too demeaning. It's too below the, a Roman citizen. And from Seneca, another philosopher, we have this quotation, which is actually one of the most unique descriptions of crucifixion in any non-biblical literature. Listen to what he says, quote, can anyone be found who would prefer wasting away in pain, dying limb by limb or letting out his life drop by drop rather than expiring all at once? Can any man be found willing to be fastened to the accursed tree, long, sickly, already deformed, swelling with ugly wounds on shoulders and chest, the drawing of breath, the breath of life amid long, drawn-out agony? He would have many excuses for dying before even mounting the cross. This is from a Roman philosopher. See, what happened in, in crucifixion was it wasn't just the moment of crucifixion. They were actually beat and flogged and struck with whips. Jesus, it says, his, a crown of thorns was placed on him. He was beaten literally uh, um, from an inch of his life. Like he was almost dead when he was beaten. And then he had to carry the cross beam, probably about a 150 pound cross beam. He had to cr- carry it through the streets, and then he was mounted on a cross. He was nailed through his hands and through his feet. And he hung there, and he died. And he didn't die just from the pain. He died from usually asphyxiation. He would droop. His lungs would collapse. He could not hold himself up any longer. And he would either drown in his own blood, or he would just be crushed, and he would just um, asphyxiate. That's how he died. The pain of crucifixion is so horrendous, that a word was invented to explain it. Excruciating literally means from the cross. A crucified person could hang on the cross for days, passing in and out of consciousness as their lungs struggled to breathe while laboring under the weight of their body. The Romans used crucifixion, especially against rebellious foreigners, military enemies, violent criminals, robbers, and slaves. In fact, slaves were so routinely crucified that crucifixion became known as the slave's punishment. 
Appian tells us that when the slave rebellion of Spartacus was crushed, the Roman general Crassus had 6,000 of the slave prisoners crucified along the stretch of the Appian Way, the main road that leads into Rome. 6,000 people, crushed, when they crushed Spartacus, 6,000 people in one day were crucified on that road. It said there were so many crucified, they couldn't even find a place to put any more crosses. Couldn't even find another, a place to put any more people. And Paul here, in writing to this young church, this young, less than about a two-year-old church, Paul says that this is what I come to preach, the word of the cross. Now, this is foolish. But Paul says, this is our gospel. This is our good news. Jesus, the son of God, crucified. Now, why would that be good news to anyone? The most wretched of deaths. How could this be good news to anyone? And this is exactly the dichotomy that Paul is trying to present here in first Corinthians. Let's keep reading verse 19 for it is written. This is God speaking in Isaiah. I will destroy. He's quoting Isaiah here. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discernment, discerning, I will thwart. What? Paul, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greek Greeks seek Wisdom. Now, what is Paul doing here? Paul is telling the Corinthians that people cannot know God through wisdom. Okay, Romans 1 kind of speaks of this, that human beings can't come to a knowledge of God through our intellect. Now, what does that mean specifically? It does not mean that we shouldn't use our minds, okay? It doesn't mean that there isn't good evidence that needs to be studied and analyzed to, to help us come to a good decision. That's not what it means, right? Paul is not saying that we should just totally abandon our minds. In fact, Jesus says we're called to love God with all of our minds. So to love God, it's going to take all of our faculties. We don't, as Christians, just shut off our minds, Okay? They have to be turned on and turned on to the glory of God. But what is Paul specifically saying here? Paul is saying that God, listen to this, God in his own wisdom has chosen to fix the world, to save sinners in a way that is totally contrary, totally opposing, totally upside down to the way of human wisdom, the way we would do it. Okay? Now, and I'm going to say, this is a great apologetic for the Christian faith. This is a great proof that Christianity was not dreamed up in the mind of some man. Because every other religion on the planet deals with power and wisdom. You come to know God through power and through wisdom, by being wiser than other people, by finding some enlightened state that other people cannot or other people haven't, or getting some kind of power that other people do not have, right? It's a way of 
earning the approval of the gods. But look at verse 22. It says, Paul says, but Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Jews demand signs. Greek, Greeks seek wisdom. The cross, Paul says, offends both and totally cuts through and cuts across both of them. It looks like a lack of power. It looks totally foolish. The Jews said this, we want to be saved. And I think all of us do this. The Jews said this, we want to be saved like this. We want a God to come in. We want a redeemer to come in. We want a savior to come in and overthrow Rome. We want a political, uh, political, powerful man to come in and redeem us and flip the script here. So now Rome is under our boot instead of us being subjugated. That's the way the Jews wanted to be fixed. That's the way the Jews wanted to be rescued. And God looked down and God said, you want signs? And I say, no. Well, the Greeks were different. The Greeks, they were selfish. They were philosophers. They wanted to be saved through wisdom. So they wanted some other philosopher to come down to say some really deep things to make us all go, oh, yeah, that's deep. Right? And not really do anything, not really affect our heart or change our life, just really think and meditate on it. They wanted some really wise philosopher to come down and deliver them. And God looked down and says, you want wisdom. And I say, no. What Paul is saying right here is we all want a redeemer. We all want a way to be fixed. We all know deep down in our core, something is broken with us and something is broken with the world and we need something to fix it. And we all look to God and most of us choose one of these two ways, power and wisdom. I want one of these two things. I need power to fix the world or I want wisdom. And many times wisdom we think will give us power. And God looks down and he kind of laughs and he says, no, I'll send Jesus to die on a cross. Now, why would he do that? Look at verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now that's kind of like sarcasm and it's very weird. Verse 26. I love this for consider your calling brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth. This is the best apologetic, right? He's he's saying God saves people through foolish means, through it doesn't look like wisdom, it looks like weakness. Oh, oh, oh. and by the way, remember remember who you are. Not many of you were stoic philosophers. Not many of you were emperors. Not many of you were in the, you know, in the upper echelon of, of influence and power in the day. Remember, guys. I love this. Paul's just like, hey, remember, um, you're morons, right? Remember where I found you? Right? He's, he's letting this, this foolish gospel is actually for foolish people. And remember, maybe now you're enlightened and you've seen the way, but you were all once foolish to begin with. Now let's keep reading. But God chose, here we see the purpose. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low 
and what is despised in the world. Like crucifixion was despised. Even the things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that, here we go, purpose. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And there you have it. Why does God do things completely different from the way that we want him and the way that we expect him to? Why? Scripture says that God's ways are higher than ours. His thoughts are above ours. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. But all of us expect God to do things our way. We expect him to use man's wisdom and man's power to fix the world. And God says, no, I'm going to use foolishness. I'm going to use folly. I'm going to use weakness. I'm going to use powerlessness. And why does he do it? Paul tells us right here. He does it so that no human being can boast in the presence of God. Now, that is an interesting statement. That means no human being will ever stand before God and go, let me tell you what I did. Let me tell you why I should get into heaven. Let me tell you why you should love me. Let me tell you why you should accept me. Hey, I started a 501c3 nonprofit. Let me tell you, I love my wife, right? I love my kids. Hey, you, every Easter, I threw a fiver in the offering plate. Every Easter. Remember that, right? Paul saying, oh my goodness, I pray that we get a bigger view of God. Because most of us have this little minuscule view of God that God fits into our worldview instead of us fitting into his creation that he created, his world, right? Now this shows us something really important. No human being will ever boast in the presence of God. Anytime God showed up, a Christophany, Jesus kind of popped up or an angel popped up even in the New Testament, you never see somebody go, oh, angel. I'm sure you're here because I'm awesome. You've been seeing how I've been living, right? Come to get some advice or something. Every time an angel showed up, every time Jesus showed up, every time God showed up in some kind of power, we see people kicking off their shoes, laying prostrate, saying, woe is me, don't kill me. Right? That's what we see when they show up. Now, this should show us something very important about God. And I'm going to know if it's going to offend you if you've never heard this before, because we grew up in a, we grew up in a society that doesn't teach scripture that doesn't teach the Bible. I'm going to say this. Here's what you need to know. God is for God. God is all about God. God is all about himself. Now that might sound what? That's very arrogant or pride or proud or, or self-focused. Yeah, kind of, but this is why. God is the source of everything good. He is the ultimate good. There's nothing gooder than God. Okay, so he cannot find anything to make himself more happy because he is the ultimate source of happiness. He is God. So and it's not he's not selfish because God exists. The Christian God exists in what's called a trinity. Father, son, Holy Spirit, the three in one community of love. So he can love himself and not be completely self-focused. So I'm going to tell you over and over and over and over and over in scripture, God says, I'm about me. I'm about my glory. My glory is why the world exists. People even exist to bring me glory. Now we have a problem with that as humans, but what we need to know is that when we glorify God, we enjoy it. 
our hearts find our ultimate purpose and meaning and significance in him. Okay? In God. So first thing we need to know is God is about God. And because all goodness is in God, God has built humans. Here we go. Point number two. God has built humans to be dependent upon him and his goodness. That means human beings are to be humble. Coming to God and relying on God for all that we need. Scripture says that God loves the humble. Why would God love the humble? Here, God's about God, right? The humble come to God and say, God, I'm broke. I need your help. God feeds them. God gets the glory. The humble come to God and say, God, I'm spiritually bankrupt. God meets their need. God gets the glory. See, God loves the humble because the humble bring him glory. And it says God opposes the proud. The proud say, I don't need God. I've got my own way. I'll find my own meaning, my own life. I'll do my own happiness. I don't need you. And God opposes them. God hates the proud heart. Scripture says that when we go as humble people, we go to God for our identities. We receive our identities from God. We go to God for our satisfaction in life. We go to God for our meaning, for our purpose, for our happiness. That's what the humble person does. They go to the source for goodness. But we see in Genesis chapter 3 that Adam and Eve did not want to be dependent upon God. Now, before I get to Adam and Eve, you're the same way. You want to make a man feel worthless? You watch him hurt his back or you watch him get injured on the job and you watch him have to sit in a chair for a week. And his wife has to serve him and he can't help out around the house. It's hard to be humble. It's hard to be served. We want to find, sometimes I think my wife loves me because I provide for her and, I'm, and, I, and I keep the house safe and I do these things. I want to be tempted to think she doesn't really love me. She just loves me for what I do. Right? All of us get really nervous and feel really awkward at being served, at being humbled. We don't want to be dependent upon anyone. And that's what we saw with Adam and Eve in the garden. They chose to be independent. They chose pride. I'll find my own power. I'll find my own meaning. I'll seek my own wisdom, my own purpose and happiness. And, I, and what we see is that rebellion, that rebellion from God as the source of all good things, that rebellion actually ruptured the universe. And now because of their sin, every person in this room has been infected by it. I'm going to tell you, this is our culture. This is what we're preaching to our children. Go make yourself. Go find yourself. Go create your own happiness and find your own meaning. It's out there somewhere. Go find it. And the Bible is completely contrary to that. It says, no, 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 it's in God. It can only be found in him. See, sin, I know it's a weird word. Most of us don't even know what sin really means. We think sin is something naughty that we all like to do, and it's just kind of fun, right? Sin is eating too much chocolate. Oh, I shouldn't do it, but it's so good. That's what we think. When you say the word sin, that's what we think in our culture today. But the Bible says sin is self-sufficiency. It's pride. 
It's saying to God, I don't need you. I think I can do better on my own. It's trying with everything you've got to prove to the world that you are wise, powerful, and noble. That you're good. And Paul is saying here that all people, no matter who you are, at your gut, at your bottom, you desire power and wisdom. But God chooses to do things in such a way that it flips the ways of the world upside down so that no human being can have pride, so that no human being can boast in his presence. See, the purpose of this world and all that is in it isn't to exalt us. It isn't to make much of us. It's to exalt God. It's to make much of God. And the Bible is a book that's about God. It's not primarily about man. People have told me that the Bible is like a roadmap to life. No, it's not. If it is, it's a horrible roadmap. Horrible. The Bible is about God. It teaches me who God is, what he has done. How has he saved humanity? Where are things headed? Do I get my little chapter? Do I get written in there somewhere? Yeah, but it's not primarily about me. If you want to find the big questions in life, like who do I marry? What school do I go to? What job should I get? How much should I invest? It's not here. It's not here. And people who who try to take the Bible and make it say those things, they don't, they don't understand the thrust of the Bible. Listen, you can go to the Bible and you can pull out some principles, but that's not the purpose. All these guys coming up with the Daniel plan and eat like Josephus or whoever the heck they're calling, right? Like, this ain't a dietitian manual. That's not the purpose of it. Goodness gracious. The purpose is to show us that God is the hero and that most of the time, In every story in the scripture, man is not the hero. We're usually the villains. And the greatest heroes that we think are in the Bible, the Bible does a great job of absolutely tarnishing their reputation by the end of their life. But doesn't that naturally bother you? We want the world and we want God to be about us. That's why I can put, I can write a book and put my face on the cover. I need to go, I'll have to go to the dentist to get my teeth whitened, real white. Put my face on the cover and I write, you're going to be a millionaire in three scriptures a day. And that bugger will sell off the shelves like hotcakes. Why? Because everybody wants to know how to get God to do our dirty work. You mean I can just say some scriptures and he'll give me a Lexus? Because he's a good daddy up in the sky? Oh, that sounds good. God will make much of me. Tell me how to do that. It's heresy. It's garbage. It's man-centered. At the very bottom is the pride of man. But we eat it up, don't we? We eat it up. We want to live like we are the center of the universe and we expect God. This is so funny because we live this way. We expect God. Well, if he's, if God is wise and powerful, then obviously he's going to choose the wise and powerful to be on his team. And then that means if you get chosen by God, you got something to boast about. I am a Christian because I am very wise and powerful. I was chosen for my wisdom, right? If God chooses people because they're smarter than other people, 
or because they have some kind of moral goodness that other people don't, then there's something intrinsically about that person that they have to boast about. God chose me because I'm not a pagan sinner like you, right? That's why God chose me. Now, I think that deep down in us, even those that theologically wouldn't say that, we, we do believe that. We do believe there's something good about us, then that's why God chose us. But here's the deal. If we are saved through our own wisdom or through our own power, then we deserve some credit for that, right? And all that would do would serve to make us more proud. It would just compound. If sin is self-centeredness, that would just compound our problem, make us more self-centered. It would make us more proud. And that is what most religion does when you get down to the bottom of it. That's why so many people say, I don't want anything to do with that religion because those types of people look down on others. And when people think they get the right way or the right theology or the right, the right view or the right way to do church, they start looking down on others who aren't as wise as us. And then when your wisdom gets challenged, you get really defensive. And it's in this world, in this world. Now, can I ask you that? Paul says the cross cuts through all that. It's foolish and it's weak. How much of your life do you spend trying to be wise and powerful? How much of your waking hours do you, do you spend trying to convince others that you're wise and powerful? That you're trying to convince yourself. Maybe if you read one more book, you're going to be wise. You take one more course, wisdom. Right? You get one more promotion. You get one more zero behind your 401k. Now you've got the power. How much of your life is spent trying to be wise and powerful? And Paul says, the cross is foolishness. See, it's in this type of world that values power, that values strength, that values beauty, that values wisdom. It's in this type of world that God sent his only son. And when we look at Jesus, how does he come to earth? See, Jesus comes to earth poor and powerless. This is the great reversal of the ways of the world, what we esteem he laughs at. Man always grasps for power. We're always trying to get in control through wisdom. We're always looking for a way to get a leg up on the competition. But when the Son of God comes to earth, he laughs at our attempts to find meaning through power and wisdom. It's like a joke. How did he come? Poor and powerless, born in a stable. How stupid! How foolish! But, but let's, let's take a, I want you to take a deeper look into the life of Jesus. See, Jesus was poor and powerless, but when we take a deeper look at his life, we see there's some kind of great power there. See, Jesus could debate with the best scholars and the rabbis of his day. We see an incredible amount of wisdom. And he could also stand in front of the men who had the most power in all the region, right? In front of the Roman proconsul, And he could stand there in complete control and dignity. And the guy says, what are you doing? Don't you know I could have you killed? And he's in complete control. And he says, 
You have no authority except that was given to you by my father. We don't see him shaking. We don't see him in fear. See, so Jesus came poor and powerless in, in one sense, but we also see him had this great control of his soul. Great control that no matter what circumstances he was in, he never lashed out. He never got afraid and offended others. We, we see this perf- perfection of his soul. He seems so confident in who he is and what he came to this earth to accomplish that nothing really phases him. So in one sense, he looks incredibly foolish, but in another sense, he looks strikingly wise. And you might say, Justin, I'm just not, I'm just not comfortable with this. What do you mean Jesus came to earth powerless? Didn't he show his power when he performed miracles and he did crazy stuff like walking on water? Yeah, sure, he did. He showed what a life lived in submission to God and submission to the Holy Spirit looked like when he healed people and he performed miracles. But then he went and got himself crucified like a slave. And we all need to hear and see and feel the despair that the cross brings. All of his disciples witnessed him walking on water and healing people and speaking for God and forgiving sins. And then when he was nailed to a cross, they all bolted. The cross was so humiliating and so despising and so shameful that this, this, okay, we were wrong. He obviously was David Blaine or something, but... He wasn't the son of God. He could do some cool tricks. He was fun at the party, but this must not be God because God can't get himself killed on a cross. How foolish. How powerless. Isn't that exactly what the Jews said to Jesus when he was hanging on the cross? He said, they said, if you're God, save yourself. Come down from there. God dying doesn't make sense. God is all powerful. God is in absolute control. A God dying on the cross is absolutely scandalous. It's completely antithetical to our wisdom. God can't die. How does God make a mistake and wind up on a tree? See, I know you can go, you can throw a rock and find a church in the Quad Cities. And you could go in there and more than likely you're never going to hear something that scandalizes you, that just offends you, that just, oh. But Paul, writing to a church, he doesn't say, he doesn't pet them. He doesn't coddle them. He doesn't, he says, you're looking away from the scandalous cross. Your problem is you're forgetting the cross. Paul is offending civilized people everywhere with the message of a bloody cross and a dying God. So, I think we need to ask ourselves, what does the cross show us? What does the cross actually accomplish? Why did Jesus come in this way? Why did God choose to flip man's wisdom upside down and try to humble them and so no man could boast in his prayer. Why did God do it through the cross? What actually happened? Now, I'm going to tell you, 
What did the cross accomplish? That's a, a question that's worthy of a thousand lifetimes of study. Okay, I'm not going. I'm going to scratch the surface this morning in the little bit of time that I've got. Let's look at verse thirty. And because of him, him is God. And because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. And because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. Now, you need to highlight that. You need to underline that. See, that is the great reward of the Christian. Not just heaven someday. See, you don't become a Christian just so you get heaven someday. The great reward of a Christian is that you get grafted into Christ. It's called union with Christ. Jesus said you'll be brought into the vine. You get brought into his family. You get brought into his bride that he will marry. Okay. There's this divine. We get caught up kind of in the divine action of God, the divine Trinity. That's what happens at the cross. And this is where we see God's wisdom. Now let me, Break this down for you. God, we already said, God is for God. God is about God. The whole world is about God. And, that, and the word the Bible uses to describe that is this. God is holy. That means he's completely self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything or anyone. He's completely happy by himself. And that's not selfish, again, because he exists in a trinity. The holy community of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But human beings have offended him. We have rebelled against him. So because he is just, he has to punish sin. Listen. If, you, if somebody goes before a judge and the judge is just feeling really soft and nice and kind that day and a rapist stands before him and the judge goes, you know what? My coffee was good this morning. I'm in a good mood. No worries. You're free today. I'm not going to count this against you. That little mistake you made. I'm not going to count it against you today. Go on, pass through. Today's your lucky day. Now what that does is that act of pardoning, that tarnishes the reputation of the judge. That judge is no longer just. You cannot bring a case before that judge and expect to get a, a just verdict. Right? It's to pick, it's just how he feels that day. Maybe he's good, maybe he's not. God is not that way. God is holy and just all the way down, all the way through. He cannot just look at our sin and go, not a big, not a big deal. No big deal today. Go on through. All of our sin, all of our pride is, a, is, a, is, a, is, is against him, is shooting for his glory, is cosmic treason. It's looking at the creator of all things and going, ah, I don't really want you. I think I can find better somewhere else. So a just God has been offended through our folly, through our sin. But what does God do? How is God going to appease his wrath that needs to be poured out for the sin and at the same time stay holy? God is going to send Jesus. And Jesus, the son of God, is totally willing to come into this broken world and show us what a life lived in total, absolute dependence upon the father looks like. See, Jesus comes into this world. He never seeks power. 
He never went after the accolades of others. He was humble and totally submitted to the Father. Jesus was never selfish. He lived a life of love toward others. Jesus Christ lived a life of love towards others. Selfless. He was absolutely perfect. This is crazy. See, I got some kids. And I realize that we're selfish from the get-go. See, Jesus never bit a kid in the nursery. Okay, Jesus was humble from the get-go. I can't say that much about my kids, right? The nursery worker said, Piper, she's 18 months. She was punching people last week. I go, really? Like, did she connect well? How'd it look, right? Jesus never sinned. He was a historical man who lived a life of love towards others. Nearly every other world religion looked at Jesus and go, yeah, he was a great prophet. He was a great man. He he really lived a life of sacrifice for others. And what did we do to him? What did humanity do to him? See, we're so in love with power and strength and wisdom. When love walked among us, it looked like folly and weakness and we killed him. See, but this is the cross. At the cross, we see that Jesus, the perfect man, the man that we all should be, took our place and took our punishment. And God looked down and was pleased to actually pour out all of his wrath that had been stored up because of our sins. This is what the Bible says. God was literally, every time a person sinned, God was withholding his wrath and he was storing it up and he was saying, I'm going to punish that. I'm going to punish that. I'm going to punish that. And those people got to live. When Adam and Eve sinned, God punished that through an animal. He killed an animal. He clothed them. And he said, I'm storing up my wrath. I will have to be just. I will have to punish that sin. I will do it one day. And what the Bible teaches is that that one day was the day Jesus Christ, the perfect sinless son of God, climbed on top of that cross. When he was on that cross, God opened the floodgates of his wrath. And all of our sin, all of the punishment for our sin was poured out onto God that all of the hatred God has for rebellion and all the hatred that God has for rape and murder and all of the horrible things all of that hatred was poured out onto Jesus and God the Father was pleased to smite him and smashed him in such a way that Jesus he said he was beyond recognition all of the wrath was poured out onto Jesus Christ And what did that do? What did that do? Look at verse 30 again. And because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. I love that. Not because of anything we've done, but because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us, who became to us wisdom from God. Now, let me pause this this right here. This is what he's saying. Every single person in this room You're born looking at the cross like it's foolishness. All of us want power. All of us 
want wisdom. All of us want to use other things to find meaning and significance. My little son right now, he wants to be cool and he, I got one around, actually I got one on right, right up my sleeve here. Loom bracelets, right? Whatever these little things are right here. These little rubber band loom bracelets. He's in the first grade. These things are really cool to him. Okay? So he wants to use these things to find significance. So what do you do if you want to use these things to find significance? My son has them up to his elbow right now. <laughs> Necklace, rings. I called him yesterday. I said, you are the Lord of the loom. Like, He's got them all the way. He's learning all these different styles. That's what we do with anything, right? If it's not shoes, if it's not clothes, if if it's letters in front of our name, if it's college degree, we want to use things to find our meaning and significance. That's who we are. But Paul says, and when we're using all these things and we're using the ways of the world and wisdom and power, we look at the cross and we're like, no, thanks. A dead God on a bloody cross. And then Jesus says stuff like, take up your cross and follow me. You be crucified with me. No, thanks. I think I'll find my meaning, my purpose somewhere else. That's a little archaic. It's a little bloody for me. No, thanks. But what happens is for believers, if we go back to verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. See, when we're perishing... Perishing means forever, by the way. It means eternal destruction. It means eternal separation from God. It means God and love and everything good will be, will be here. And hell is, is eternal perishing. It's the absence of God. It's the absence of good. It's the absence of love. It's the absence of blessing. There is no partying in hell. It's darkness. It's the absence of God. But for those who are perishing, for those who are on the way of perishing, the cross looks like foolishness. But look at the next line. But to us... Paul includes himself. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, there's a time in all of our lives that we are on the road to destruction. We are on the road that ends in perishing. And the cross looks foolish. I don't need the cross. I can find, figure out my own way. When I get to, I believe in a God that when I get to heaven, he's going to say, hey, you're a pretty good guy. Your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. I'm going to let you in. You've created a God in your own image. You think God is about you and God is not about God. And what Paul is saying right here is all of us start out looking at the cross like it's foolish, like we don't really need it. But there comes a point in every single one of us, not everyone, but there comes a point in the elect, there comes a point in the church, there comes a point in the bride of Christ, those to whom Christ died. Jesus says in John 6 that I, uh, that, uh, that I came to get all the ones the Father gave me. He didn't come to save everyone. He came to save all the ones that the Father gave him, and he never lost one of them. And for those, there's a moment where God moves in your heart through the power of the Holy Spirit and you're awakened and all of a sudden, it could be at the bottom of the bottom, it could be at the top of the top, all of a sudden, you see the wisdom in Jesus Christ. You see the wisdom of God in the cross. You realize, yes, that's what I need. I I need God to die for me, to forgive me and deliver me and save me. He became to us, wisdom from God. And look, he, now he's going he's to use three words we don't use too much today. He became to us, look at this, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Righteousness, I'm just going to say that's perfection. We all strive for it. Perfectly righteous means we don't screw up. I'm reading a great book right now that, that defines sin like this. Sin 
is the, I can't say what it actually says, but sin is the human propensity to screw things up. Here's what I know about you. You're human and you screw things up. Your marriage, your relationships, your kids, your work, you screw things up. Let's just admit that. That's the fact that we screw things up. We're not righteous. Jesus Christ never screwed things up because he was God in the flesh. And what happens at the cross is he takes our wrath, but then he gives us his righteousness, gives it to us. We don't earn it. He says, now God is going through faith. I'm going to transfer my perfect record, my perfect report card, all of my rightness. I'm going to deposit it into your account. So now that's been credited to you because of me. So through faith, you are now righteous. Jesus is our righteousness, our sanctification. That means we're being made. This is a process. People come into the faith at all different levels of life. And God is actually making us more and more and more like himself. He's making us more and more and more humble as we live our life. He's chopping away at the rough edges of our life. Right? Jesus is our sanctification. He's bought that for us. And then lastly, he says, he is our redemption. What does redemption mean? Redemption means you've been bought back. Someone paid your debt and purchased you. You owed a debt that you could not pay. And Jesus Christ, through his blood, has purchased you. And Ephesians tells us, who does he purchase? He, pur- he lays his life down for the church. He bought his bride. The blood of Christ paid the price for his bride. Now, what that means is that Jesus fixes everything. Jesus obeyed God perfectly where we fail. Jesus takes all the punishment that our sins deserves. That means we, as believers in Jesus Christ, through faith, we are free. God has no more wrath against us. And when we look at the work of Jesus on the cross, and we go, yes, I needed that. I am broken. I do screw things up. I am self-centered and I can't fix myself. I can't save myself. I need Jesus. When we do that, God, through faith, deposits all of Jesus' good deeds into your bank account and we're counted as righteousness. That's what happens. That's the transaction that happens at the cross. Now, why did God save people that way? That seems very complex. Paul tells us really simply so that people would boast in the Lord, so that people would glorify God, so that people would go, oh, it's not about me. It's about God. It's all about God. It's about Jesus. But for that to happen, first God has to humble us got these great lines. David was one of the best men in the Old Testament. But you know what, David, and people get really nervous around this because you know what, David's praying to God and you know what David calls himself? I'm a worm. We're like, whoa, this guy really needs some positive (laughs) self-talk. 
supposed to have three positive to every negative, David. You're really down. Right? He says, I'm a worm. And then he says this, but God knows my frame. He remembers that I'm dust. Here's your good news this morning. You are dust. And to dust, you shall return. Every one of us in this room will be worm food one day. Might as well go with a biodegradable casket. Get it done early. No matter how many awards, no matter how many accolades, no matter how many degrees, no matter how many zeros behind your 401k, you are dust. This world is not about you. It will go on when you're done. This world is about God and you have offended the God of the universe. Your pride is rebellion against him. Your self-sufficiency and all your attempts to save yourself has caused his wrath to burn brightly against you. And there's only two places for that wrath to go. One is on Jesus Christ at the cross and the second is upon yourself at your death. For the one who looks to the cross and he says, you know what? I see the wisdom of God there. I need the blood of Jesus to fix me, to cover me. All the wrath of God for your sin was put on Jesus 2000 years ago. He's already paid it. He's redeemed it. He's absorbed it. You're free. But for the person who looks at the cross and scoffs, foolish, there's many ways to God, religion. For that person, the wrath of God is being stored up still and it will be poured out upon them in eternal separation from God. Jesus redeemed his bride. He paid the price of the church's sin for all those who will accept this gift by faith. The blood has cleansed and covered but here is a great paradox. You see, uh, Justin, that's harsh. That's bleak. That... You see, need to see this paradox. God humbles us to love us. That's the paradox. God is all the goodness. And God, so God loves dust. God loves broken, humble people because broken, humble people say, I need help. And that brings him glory because he is the helper. He's the one who saved. He's the one who came and died. When we say I'm broken and I can't save myself, it brings God a lot of glory because Jesus Christ's death was sufficient and efficient for their behalf. God loves dust. He's absolutely in love with stupid, powerless people who know their station and they look to him for grace because God gets all the glory in their salvation at the cross. My question for you today is, can you see the beauty in that? 
Can you see the beauty? Do you feel that inner brokenness? Stop trying to gloss it over with positive self-talk and more accolades and, and, and just trying to plug your ears to it and, and, and avoid it. You know you feel it. God died for that brokenness. Can you see the beauty in that? Being a Christian isn't another way just to get happy and just to make it about us. Being a Christian is about God. We get God. And let me build this out. Last thing as I close. Here's the implication of all that. Here's what that means. Christians should be the most humble, gracious, self-sacrificial people on the planet because everything we have, everything we are, and everything we will be is because of Jesus. None of us pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps. None of us earned this. None of us were wise enough. None of us were powerful enough. Everything we have is because of Jesus. And I would ask you this morning as... This message is going out. What are you trying to earn that only Jesus can give you? Wisdom? Really on the treadmill of trying to be wise in your own eyes, wise in the sight of other people. Righteousness? Want other people to go, that guy knows what he's doing. That girl, she, she's right. She knows what she's doing. Sanctification? Redemption? Trying to earn be good enough. I can clean myself up. I'm powerful enough. God's going to look down at me and go, wow, you're straight edge. You're clean. You're so good. I'm going to tell you what this does. That mentality, when we're trying to earn, it makes us fearful and, and proud. Fearful and proud. Why? Because it can be taken. Receiving this by grace makes us peaceful and humble because it can't be taken. Jesus bought it. It has nothing to do with me. Listen, if God loves me because I'm wise, then what happens when I do something stupid? If you guys love me because I'm wise, what happens when I say something stupid? Because you stay around here long enough I'm going to say something stupid. Maybe I already did today. My wife will tell me later. Right? If I have to earn wisdom, if I have to earn your approval, what happens when I say something stupid? Listen, if God loves you because you're wise, what happens when you say something stupid or do something stupid? Here's what happens. Christian, you lose your awareness of his love. I'm so dumb. I can't believe I did that. You feel this sense of letting God down. You feel this sense of God is, he is disapproving of me. He is not accepting of me because I'm stupid. But when I look to the cross, when I look to the cross, I realize that can't be true. I am stupid. When I look to the cross, I say, I am stupid, but God dies for stupid people. God loves me because I am stupid. I am weak. I am a sinner. But God at the cross shows me that he loves stupid, sinful people. So he can't be upset with me when I do something stupid. If God 
If I believe that God loves me more when I'm following the rules, I will be fearful. I will live in a fear of displeasing him. And when I inevitably sin and break the rules, I'll be crushed thinking that God is disappointed in me. God really thought I I was supposed to be awesome. I was supposed to be a lot better than I am. He's disappointed in me. But when I look to the cross, oh, precious truth. When I look to the cross, I realize that God cannot be disappointed in me. The cross shows me that God has always known how bad I am. And he sent Jesus for that very reason. He loves broken people. See, the cross humbles us to the dust. But then it exalts us to the heavens. You are foolish, sinful, spiritually bankrupt, but God loves the poor and powerless. And when we see that and we admit our station and we come to him for grace, our hearts are melted by his one-way love and that exalts us to the heavens. There is nothing as satisfying in this life or in the next life as the undeserved love of God. He humbles us to love us. And here's the paradox. The cross shows us that in our flesh, we are powerless. What is this? I don't even know. January. It's the end of January. I don't know the date. I can't think of it off the top of my head. But let me say, how many of your resolutions have bit the dust already? Isn't January the month that shows us how powerless we are? Sugar fast. None of it. I'm a juice fast. I'm going to get up every morning and read my Bible for 45 minutes. You've broken it. You know you have. Or many of us, we don't even do that anymore. That just makes me feel guilty. <laughs> right? Hey, how's that gym membership going? See, the cross humbles us. It shows us that we're powerless. But then this is the, this is the paradox. When we see the wisdom in it, and it gives us an unsinkable power. When I know that God loves me because of Jesus, not because of anything I've ever done. When I know that God loves me because of Jesus, that he's proven his love for me on the cross... That God is for me because God is for God and God is for Jesus. And Jesus has already paid the debt. So God, he's for Jesus. He's for me. When I see that, I know no matter what comes in my life, God is not punishing me because he's directly already punished Jesus. Nothing that comes into my life is punishment because God has already punished Jesus. When I see that, that God loves me, And God is for me because of what Jesus has done. It gives me an unsinkable power. My heart is like a huge buoy. You can suck it down. Here's what we're tempted to do. My bank account tells me God loves me. When it's in the red, you don't love me. Right? The way my wife treats me tells me God loves me the way my kids respond to my parenting, the way my boss treats me, the way whatever. 
We want to judge all these things in our life. That shows that God loves us. And God's like, no, 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 no. You need to look one place when you're doubting the love of God. And that's to the cross where God died for sinners. Anytime we doubt the love of God, we need to lock our eyes on the cross. It shows me that can't be. He's already showed me ultimate love, ultimate sacrifice in coming and living the life that I fail to live and dying the death that I deserve. The cross shows us that he loves us at the bottom of our sinfulness. I'm going to say that again. The cross shows us that he loves us at the bottom of our sinfulness. And I'm going to tell you something today. Many of you in this room, you haven't even seen the bottom of your sinfulness yet. I'd say everybody in this room hasn't seen the bottom of your sinfulness. There's coming days and weeks and months and years ahead of you that your sinfulness will surprise you. You'll do something you thought, you, I can't believe, I can't believe I did that. You're not even there yet. And when you get there, look back to the cross because Christ knew you were, Christ knew you were going to do that when he paid for your sins at the cross 2,000 years ago. Past, present, future, all your sins paid by the blood of Christ. And if that is true, there is nothing we can do to lose the affection of our Father. Christ purchased it for us. Christ can't fail. Christ can't lose a sheep. This is the glory of God in our salvation. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word. That it does humble us. It does awaken us to our frailty, our humanity. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. Father, and you have people in this room this morning that you are offering a life with you. You are offering them salvation. You are offering them Jesus. You are offering them to be united with you. You are offering them heaven and all that comes with it. You are offering them a family. Through faith right now, through your Holy Spirit right now, you are offering it to them. And though they might have walked in and said, foolish. I pray that they see the wisdom now. I pray that their eyes have been enlightened, that the spirit has quickened their dead heart and they can, and you would give them the faith to believe right now. And they would put their faith in Jesus Christ. Because though Jesus Christ died on the cross and he said, it is finished. Three days later, he was resurrected by the power of God. And he stands in heaven right now at the right hand of the Father. And one day he will be coming back to make this world right, to fix it all. And we wait for that day. In humble, expectant anticipation. And I ask, Father, that you would communicate through the power of your Holy Spirit. You would communicate the love that you poured out on us at the cross. You would communicate that to your people. As we come to the Lord's table and you said we, every time we do this, we are literally preaching and declaring the death of Jesus. That we are so bad that God had to die for us, but we are so loved, Jesus couldn't wait to do it. I thank you for this truth. 
Father, would you communicate that to us through this meal of grace for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.